0: You know, it doesn't take a rocket surgeon to come to the conclusion that we, and by we, I don't mean just US citizens, but common people all around the world, are being lied to by our global elites, constantly, energetically. We're being lied to a lot, and we know it. In fact, we live in a world where someone can walk up to you, punch you in the face, and then claim that you hit them. And if you try to argue what you know to be true, you'll be told that an independent panel of fact-checkers has determined your claim to be either false, misleading, or missing context. And that, it seems, is the end of that these days. Now, I have a solid theory about why the global elites are lying to us and I have a pretty good idea of what they're lying about. What I'm interested in right now is how. How are they getting away with it? Well, they get away with it because they're masters of psychological manipulation. It's almost like they can read our minds. We're going to explore how people can weaponize trust, and this one's gonna take a while, so just sit back and enjoy the ride. Now, by happy coincidence, about a week ago, my beautiful wife Natasha told me about an amazing show that her friends had just seen. It was a performance by a guy, I guess the best word for him would be a mentalist. It's an interactive, one-man show that featured amazing feats of memorization and the uncanny ability to seemingly read minds. And to his great credit, this mentalist, and I'll call him the performer from here on, didn't make any claims about being psychic or having any supernatural ability. It's just that he'd spent his entire life looking for psychological blind spots and neural hardwiring that could be used to manipulate people to an uncanny degree. I immediately bought a pair of tickets and I very much wanted to have my mind read so that I could understand how this kind of psychological manipulation actually works. I wanted to understand the how. Now the best way for me to show you how all of these psychological tricks work is to just tell you about the show as I saw it unfold and then we'll go back and look at some of those examples to see what was really going on behind the subconscious curtain. When we first walked in, we were handed a folded slip of paper, a pencil, and a small envelope and told by the ushers that since this is an interactive experience, they'd like us to find someplace private, open up the slip of paper, follow the instructions. Now, these instructions might be something like think about your favorite historical character or concentrate on what you're most afraid of, that kind of thing. So that's what we did. Then we sealed the paper in the small envelope, wrote our first name, last initial and seat number down at the bottom, and then watched as the usher walked to a table at the front of the theater and dropped our questions into a large, empty goldfish bowl. And I kept my eye on that bowl. So a little after eight o'clock, the people started filing into the lobby and we were all mingling and buying drinks at the bar and going to the bathroom and all of that usual audience stuff. And then we stepped into the theater. 99 excited, enthusiastic people, and one 63-year-old walking lie detector with great hair. And so the lights dim. Now there is no stage, there's just an open area in the front of the first row. Then, a paper airplane comes sailing out from the wings and lands randomly on the floor. And after a moment, the person nearest to the paper airplane eventually is persuaded to open it up and read what's on the inside. She goes to a telephone on the desk, someone answers the phone, and the show begins with the performer emerging holding the other end of a phone that's not connected to anything. He asks the woman her name and then to concentrate on a specific face in her mind, the one that she'd mentioned in her envelope. He asks her to close her eyes, and after several seemingly unrelated questions, he asks, Is this someone you lost recently? And she nods, Is it your father? Yes, she says, and bursts into tears, gasps all around the room. He thanks her, and she returns to her front row seat. Before he starts in earnest, he says, he needs to make a little opening speech. He says that he has no psychic powers and is instead going to be using subtle psychological and body language cues to read our minds. He says that none of the audience members are in any way plants, and just for good measure, he walks up to an audience member and ask them to pat him on the forehead just behind the hairline, thump, 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 all throughout the room. You see, he doesn't want anyone to think that he's getting any secret signals from backstage. That wire is just the stage microphone and he lets you look into his ears to confirm this. Okay, he says, enough about the opening formalities, let's start the show. 10 colored balloons fall from the ceiling now people are encouraged to bat them around kind of play with them for a while the steely-eyed missile man knocks a few of them himself and it's soon obvious that after 30 seconds of this those balloons are definitely randomized and then the performer sharply asks those in the audience to hold on to the nearest balloon if one happens to land near them the performer then asks for whoever is holding the red balloon to please stand up and he does so he gives his first name and last initial then the performer says, to my amazement, that they do actually know each other. They'd been classmates in their sophomore year at college, but he had no idea this guy would be in the audience tonight. He then asks the man to come down to the front of the stage. The performer asks him to name any fictional character he can think of. Then there's a bunch of idle chatter and a few questions about his personal life. These questions have nothing to do with literature. And after several minutes, the performer seems puzzled and then kind of surprised and then amused. Is it Luke Skywalker, he says? It is! More gasps and amazement and applause. So next, he picks another name at random from the bowl, and a tall, blonde, well-dressed woman reluctantly stands up. He hands her a book, which turns out to be the complete works of Charles Dickens. He says that he's memorized most of it, up to page 344, and then asks her to pick any page before 344. So 209, she says. He then starts describing the elaborate visual process that he uses to store memories. He attaches memories two pictures. It's very detailed and it's peppered with a lot of actual cerebral anatomy and neurological facts. And then at last, in his mind, he finds where he'd stored that information he's looking for. And then he starts to read from the top of page 209. Did he get it right? He did. Pick another random page. Okay, 87. He reads the first paragraph, slight error this time, but very nearly perfect. And I'm sitting there going, my god, What a tool that would be to have that kind of memory. I want to learn how he stores information visually. I want to know how he does it. Then he reaches into the fishbowl again and asks for Stan G in row 65F to please stand. Now, as it turns out, Natasha is exactly one seat behind Stan G, and I am directly behind his male friend. They're both older men in their 70s at least. One of them has an oxygen tube under his nostrils. So the performer asks Stan G to come down to the front sit in a chair close his eyes and think about the happiest moment of his entire life there's no psychic posturing just a few seemingly random questions and finally the performer says he's starting to get an image and a slide of a wedding cake appears on the screen he asks the man to open his eyes and he immediately starts to tear up then the performer says i knew for absolute certain it had something to do with a wedding he says but i thought maybe was it one of your daughters Then Stan G looks up through his tears and points to the man sitting right in front of me and says, I was thinking of the day that I married my husband of 30 years. He's right over there. Now the man that's sitting in front of me, frail looking fellow with an oxygen line running to his nose, he starts to weep as well. And this is Los Angeles, so thunderous applause, of course. Now, during the show, I began to develop a theory After the show, Natasha and I walked out to the lobby, she went to the ladies room, and from a discreet distance, I kept my eye on the performer who was taking questions and posing for selfies in the lobby and who could not have been more humble and gracious. And then the two married men walked up to him practically in shock and asked him how he could possibly have guessed the answer. And at that instant, I knew beyond a shadow of a doubt how he had accomplished these amazing feats of memory and suggestion. The technique he used was actually very simple. It was elaborate around the edges because it needed to be, but the primary psychological tool he used was very simple. Ready for the technique? Okay, here it comes. He lied. He lied. Everybody in the audience that he called on was a plant. He just plain lied, which in this case is perfectly okay. That's what happens in a theater. Professional liars lie to you. You know they're lying to you. And you not only let them do it, you pay them to lie to you. I'm Luke Skywalker, and I'm here to rescue you. No, you're not. You're Mark Hamill. You're surrounded by 30 people that are just out of the frame. You're speaking to a piece of tape on the wall. And you're not here to rescue anybody. As a matter of fact, you probably had to repeat that same line several times so that later in the editing room, experts could decide which one of those several lies sounded most like you were telling the truth. Now, since these amazing feats of memory and mind reading were so improbable and since what was by far the most obvious and simple answer, namely that he was interacting with fellow actors, then why did so many people, myself included for most of the time, why did we believe him? Well, now we get to the useful stuff. Let's start with the small but important details, because like any good performer, I'm gonna save the best material for the finale. The paper airplane sails from backstage, randomly landing just in front of a woman on the front row, a woman who had to be convinced by the rest of the audience, me included, to overcome her shyness and unfold the paper. That wasn't random. Whoever threw that paper airplane had rehearsed it for weeks. It landed exactly where it was supposed to, namely, at the feet of the woman, the actor, who would then act amazed and tearful when the performer pretended to conjure her father's face in her mind. Let's look at that little pre-show speech he gave. He promises that there are no secret plants in the audience. Okay, seems like an honest guy. And then he immediately reveals that the wire he is wearing is just a microphone and that it's not getting any signals from backstage. Check his ears. That's true. The fact that he's telling you the truth about the wire makes you believe he's telling you the truth about the plants in the audience. He's right up front with it. All right, then how did the next guy he called on end up with the red balloon if he was a plant? Huh? Answer me that. Those colored balloons have been absolutely randomized. So how did the one guy he called on, the plant, happen to get the red balloon without diving for it or something? Hmm? What if somebody else had grabbed the red balloon? See, this is what weaponized trust will do to your critical thinking abilities that guy didn't have to get the red balloon he just had to get any balloon if he'd ended up with a yellow balloon then the performer would ask for the person with the yellow balloon to please stand up and since they dropped pretty much over his head that wasn't so hard we think that when the performer said okay now hold on to the balloons that that would be the cue for the plant to hold a balloon but what was really happening was the performer was waiting until the plant had a balloon in his hands and then he said to stop batting them around here i was thinking i was looking at a case of cause and effect when in fact what i was seeing was effect and then the cause okay well what about the admission that they'd already met these two people isn't that suspicious it was suspicious it was very suspicious then i said to myself just like everybody else in the audience wait hang on a second now If this were a scam, then admitting that these two knew each other before the show would lower our confidence. Well, he just lowered our confidence, so this can't be a scam, right? The only reason he would admit to something that made us suspicious must be because he's telling the truth. Full disclosure, that's what honest people do. Okay, smart guy, what about the memory bit? How do you explain that? Well, the performer reached into a bowl, shook it up, and pulled out a name at random. Now, that just as easily could have been my name and seat number because no one could read it from the audience. And then he handed the complete works of Charles Dickens to the tall, well-dressed woman in the seat that he did call on, that he was always going to call on. Now, a good con man could have pulled that off by simply handing her the book, but a great con man hands over the book, but then insists that they only choose any page from the beginning to page 344 because he hasn't memorized anything past that point, which tells your brain that anything before that point he has memorized. He hadn't memorized 344 pages. He'd memorized the first paragraph of pages 209 and page 87, the two pages that his fellow actor called out at random. And what about that slight error on the second read? If this were a scam, he wouldn't make a mistake, right? But since he made a mistake. And what about the man sitting right in front of my wife who had visualized his marriage to the man sitting right in front of me, who both cried at the happy memory? What about them? Well, I watched both of them afterwards, like a hawk. I watched them for the rest of the show. They whispered excitedly. They kept shaking their heads in amazement. Everybody else he called on was doing the same thing gasping in open-mouthed amazement which gave the rest of us the social proof that we needed to agree and gasp and shake our heads in disbelief as well now as i said i was only sure i was right when the show was over natasha had gone to the ladies room and while i was standing in the lobby some distance away these two men the married men went up to the performer gushing about how uncanny it was and they did that because that is exactly what someone who had just had their minds actually read would have done. That's when I realized that the show wasn't over yet. You see, the show began in the lobby and it ended in the lobby. And now, ladies and gentlemen, please turn your attention to center stage as we prepare for the grand finale. The second most important thing that that performer did was to have us fill out those question forms. Before I even bought the tickets, i was convinced that this was an interactive experience between the performer and the audience and i knew that this must be true because when we entered the lobby the ushers told me again that this was an interactive experience the ushers told me that am i saying that even the ushers were in on it yes that's exactly what i'm saying the ushers reinforced the premise because ushers are not performers and they couldn't possibly have skin in this game and it worked because every time the performer reached around into that bowl for a new random name, I could feel myself kind of leaning into it, like, get ready, Bill, this time it could be you. Look, virtually all of you have seen the shell game, right? A guy has three walnut shells, and he puts a tiny rubber ball under one of them, and then he'll mix them up, and if you can follow the ball and correctly guess which shell it's under, then you'll win some money. But if it's not under the shell you pick, then you lose some money. You know that you're far smarter than the average bear, that you have astonishing powers of concentration unavailable to regular people, so you take the bet. So, he does all of the swirling, all the reversals, and all that. Now, as a rational person, what do you think the minimum odds are of getting the right answer? Minimum. Thirty-three percent, right? One out of three. Even with your eyes closed the entire time, you should statistically get the right answer an average of one out of three times. Well, in point of fact, the worst case scenario for guessing correctly is not 33%, it's 0%, which also happens to be your best case scenario chance of winning as well. There you stand, looking at these three walnuts, trying to guess which one the ball is under. But in reality, while you're standing there looking, the ball isn't under any of them. All three of those walnut shells are empty. Using sleight of hand, a real simple trick, as he uncovers a walnut, he will place the ball under one of the two nuts that you didn't pick. And that means that he's gonna win every time, unless he's very good. In that case, he'll let you win one or two times, double or nothing. Or maybe the person who is right in front of you guesses correctly and wins 100 bucks right in front of your eyes. He's part of the act too. He's weaponizing your trust by providing evidence that you can win this game. And he's gonna get a cut of your money too. I badly wanted the performer to call on me, but there was zero chance that my name was going to be called that night, just like there was zero chance Natasha would be called and the chance that any member of the audience that actually paid to see the show would have their name called is also zero. By having me put my name on that envelope and then watching carefully as it was placed in the bowl with the rest of the names, when it came to weaponizing my trust, the performer was already halfway there. I was convinced that this was real before I even entered the theater. Why, why, why? Well, because in every other movie or play that I've ever seen, the willing suspension of disbelief began when I entered the theater. It's a sunny Saturday afternoon. I'm sitting there in a room full of people. Everybody's eating popcorn. The lights go down. The movie starts. and Oh my God, it's a werewolf. But in this case, the show didn't begin with the lights going down and me sitting in a chair in the theater. This show, actually began when I entered the lobby. The woman who picked up the paper airplane that just randomly landed at her feet in the front row She was behind me in line at the minibar. I heard her talking to her husband about whether or not to use the bathroom. I saw the older gay couple browsing the brochures of upcoming shows. I saw the tall, blonde, well-dressed woman arrive just before the show started, as tall, blonde, well-dressed women are wont to do. After all, an upscale, successful person like that doesn't have the time to just hang out in a theater lobby for 30 minutes. I got shown everything that I expected to see except for the fact that this was not a one-man show. It was a play with a cast of 10, nine of whom were buying a glass of wine or coming out of the bathroom or checking their messages or asking you if anyone was sitting in the chair next to you or filling out questionnaires over at the table. Social proof will generate weaponized trust, which brings me to the most important thing that the performer did that night. He cast actors look so ordinary so diverse so plain I think the term I'm really looking for is so unlikely that your mind refused to even consider the possibility that they were actors because we all know what actors look like right they're glamorous and gorgeous they're young attractive chatty charming they're certainly not four foot ten little gray-haired ladies with a slightly Jewish accent except that occasionally in a movie they might need a four foot ten inch little gray haired lady actor to deliver a line or two or maybe to just sit slightly out of focus in a booth behind Chris Pratt and Jennifer Lawrence in order to sell the lie that we're in a deli in New York City and not on a soundstage in Georgia. Casting, 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 casting. That was the single most important thing he did. The most important way to weaponize trust is making sure that you see what you expect to see and you see it from the people you would expect to see it from. That and the assumption, that the people who look like they could not possibly be part of the act are part of the the act. Take this guy, for example. James Comey, former director of the FBI, a 6-foot-8-inch, all-American, square-jawed lawman. The town marshal, Gary Cooper, former Eagle Scout, no doubt, and exactly the kind of man who would find himself in charge of that pillar of integrity known as the Federal Bureau of Investigation. You see that guy standing there, his right hand raised as he's being sworn in, and he has to be telling the truth. He has to be. But when you see him out of costume, however, it does become a little less convincing, doesn't it? Now, likewise, you wouldn't want a grown boy scout to tell you about virology, right? He's a lawman. What does he know about viruses? No. In order to get terrified people to do what you want them to do, you need someone who looks the part. Someone like this guy, for example, a well-respected scientist, leader in his field who emphatically assures you that the unknown virus of unspecified origin absolutely did not come from the Wuhan Virology Lab, an institution he knows very well, because eight years ago he had to find a way to channel funds to it despite an outright ban imposed by the Obama administration. In Arizona, we had a county take almost two weeks to count the vote, a process certified by the person in charge of the procedure who, by happy coincidence, turned out to be the winning candidate in the election that she was supervising, and on and on and on and on we go. So here's the takeaway. If you want to test whether someone has weaponized your fundamentally honest and trusting nature against you, first, do you want to trust somebody who may be lying to you because they look exactly the way a lawman or a scientist or whatever should look. In other words, do you trust them because they are giving you exactly what you would expect to see? Second, and conversely, do you tend to trust someone who may be lying to you because they look so unlike the kind of person that you would suspect would be lying to you? In other words, they look so unremarkable that you cannot imagine why they would have any reason to lie to you in the first place. Oh, and one final thing. If you want to weaponize trust to the degree that people will start gaslighting themselves, make damn sure that the people on those impartial panels of independent fact-checkers are on the team. Because we trust that something disguised as a panel of independent fact-checkers must be telling the truth. And so could not possibly be that innocent-looking guy who's holding a red balloon in seat 67G and who not only knows but has in fact rehearsed for weeks the answer to a question before it's even been asked.